Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, I trust that we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited the Roshi Abbott social activist and author, Joan Halifax, most recently the author of Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. The funny thing is, I have not heard from Joan this morning, and I am waiting to uh, hear from her to confirm that she has come down from the mountain, I think at her uh, Upaya Center in the mountains of New Mexico, and she's supposed to, I believe, come to uh, level ground in order for us to have this interview. So we are waiting her arrival. But in the meantime, I'm going to share with you the introduction to her and to the show. In order to establish a better world, we know that we need a clear, balanced mind and compassionate heart. Mitchell's guest today this week is author, teacher, and abbot Roshi Joan Halifax, who will help us understand and access the state of being and heightened perspective. Teacher Joan Halifax is an American Zen Buddhist teacher, anthropologist, ecologist, civil rights activist, hospice caregiver, and the author of several books. She currently serves as abbot and guiding teacher of Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, a Zen peacemaker community, which she founded in 1990. Joan Halifax Roshi has received Dharma transmission from both Bernard Glassman here in New York, in Riverdale, and Thich Nhat Hanh, and previously studied with the Korean master Sung Sun. In the 1970s, she collaborated on LSD research projects with her ex-husband, Stanislav Groff, who has also been on the air here, in addition to other collaborative efforts with Joseph Campbell and Alan Lomax. She is founder of the Ojai Foundation in California, which she led from 1979 to 1989. As a socially engaged Buddhist, Halifax has done extensive work with the dying through the, her project on Being with Dying. She is on the board of directors of the Mind and Life Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated in exploring the relationship of science and Buddhism. So that's the introduction. And Joan, Hi. have you joined us? Welcome. I have. Good. How are you? I'm fine, so thanks. Are you? Talking about standing at the edge, I was just standing at the edge, <laughs> awaiting okay, your well, arrival. <laughs> thank you. I have arrived. I am home. Excellent. Excellent. So it's I'm very glad nice you're home. to connect with you. Very nice yes, to connect Joan, with you. By all means, it's been so many years I've actually known of you and admired your work, and uh so it truly is a pleasure and an honor to be standing at the edge with you for a few minutes and oh. having a chance to learn of your work. Thank you. Thank you, Mitch. Absolutely. So I think Absolutely. you have some questions. Well, I do. I do. First of all, 
am I right that you just descended from the mountains or well, and arrived not home? Entirely. Or? <laughs> well, okay. I um not entirely. I actually descended from the mountains and I went to Chicago to teach, then New York City to teach, then Garrison to teach oh, and I just got back. Okay. I see. Okay. Garrison, New York. Yeah. Oh my, that but, means so, we were so I'm happy to be back other. in Santa Fe at Upaya, which is this completely beautiful place with oh our chaplaincy candidates and, um, you know, a big room full of very compassionate people. That is so beautiful. And that is sort of the the Joan Halifax archetype, a group of compassionate people who are in the world doing good work, and when they're not in the world doing good work, they're sitting on their cushion doing good work inwardly. <laughs> and you exemplify, as I wrote in our A Better World newsletter, Joan, this, uh, you know, beautiful interface between our rich inner life that needs so much cultivation and awareness to see all of the aspects of who we are. And, of course, you go into this in your book, and I'd like to hear you explore that, as well as the other outer edge, if you will, uh, of the outside world that is so rife with injustice and uh, disillusion and and issues of one sort or another that mount violence, being reactionary, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And you have found that, you know, delicate balance between the two, and, of course, that's a good part of your book. Could you talk with us a little bit about what inspired you to write the book and what are the key points you would like us to understand? So, um, uh Gosh, there are so many points, but let me just say a few things, Mitch. You know, I've been working, as you you mentioned, in the uh, end-of-life care field for many decades, and not only with dying people, but also with clinicians, also with family caregivers and social workers and chaplains. Mm-hmm. I've also been involved in humanitarian work for many decades and as a result have interacted with, you know, hundreds of people working in uh earthquake areas um in, you know, where the tsunamis have hit and mm-hmm. uh even in the trade towers, the chaplains who worked in the trade towers in New York City during 9/11. Yes. And um, as a result of that, my uh, encounter with these uh, people, real bodhisattvas, you know, extraordinarily Mm -hmm. compassionate, selfless individuals, has been very instructive. It's been inspiring on one hand, and then on the other hand, there's been a kind of concern. And that concern uh, has been not only for those people, but also it's reflected into my own experience um, because I began to identify areas, capacities, qualities of these uh, people, which mm-hmm. actually we, we we all share these qualities, but they're you know very uh, magnified in people who are in this area of service. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking also about educators and uh, many of the lawyers that I relate to. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and also politicians like uh, Congressman Ryan, 
And you Tim know, Ryan, I, yes, I've met him. Yep. Yeah, beautiful man. Wonderful person. Yeah. And so, you know, what came, has come up for me o- over decades is that um, serving others uh, is a source of moral elevation. Um, it's inspiring. It, uh, in, you know, enhances one's sense of uh, the experience of flourishing. But sometimes, and for some individuals, there are many challenges. And I began to map out those challenges because what we're trying to do in the work that I do as an educator is to create the conditions where people's resilience can be enhanced, but also, uh, in addition to resilience, the sense of flourishing. And I identified, Mitch, five different areas that I think are very important for us to explore And these areas are capacities which human beings have. Um, They're very important psychological capacities. They enhance um, our sense of uh, internal value. Uh, They also enhance uh, well-being in society. But the interesting thing about these capacities, Mitch, is that when they're uh, uh, being expressed in a way that is Uh, imbalanced, that is uh, unhealthy or even more extreme, toxic, Uh, Mm -hmm. these capacities can harm us, these capacities can harm others, they can harm the institutions that we're working in, they can also harm those whom we're endeavoring to serve, or even the institutions that those people are in, or even whole nations. And so um, I felt it was important to write a book that focused on these capacities, both the healthy expression and the unhealthy expression, and how it's important to stand on the high edge of these capacities to see the whole landscape uh, of these qualities on one hand. And then on the other hand, um, what would transform the toxic expression of those qualities? And what I discovered was the the most uh, important feature that human beings uh, or capacity that we human beings have that transforms our lives and the lives of others in an unflinchingly positive and completely positive way um, mm-hmm. is compassion. So um, those and those capacities are interesting because um, I want to just mention them, Mitch, because I think they're they're. Uh, oh, please walk us very, through. And it yeah, was very, you and, if I'm not mistaken, Shakyamuni Buddha, who came to that same conclusion. Well, you're in good um, company. <laughs> Yeah, I'm in his company. I'm in the company of others, too, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Tanya Singer, yeah. Richie Davidson, Antoine Lutz, Mathieu Ricard. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so it's it's good company. I'm just and, playing, uh, there but, are lots yeah, of other very good company. Yeah, That's Barbara sure. Fredrickson, uh, Seligman. Anyway. But those capacities yes. include Fred, excuse me, include Mitch. And Mitch, uh, tell me, how long are we talking this morning? I, I forgot to we have that. We have um, just about an hour. Okay, I just want to be mindful of Do that. you have that? Yeah, so we're, we're quite good. Good. Can, do you have that amount of time? 
Almost. Um, I, I have this okay. big chaplaincy training program, so I have to be in the program at 10 o'clock. So if Which is exactly. We can finish hour. up at, you know, close to that, like 55 minutes or so. Would be great okay, if great. you can do that. Please continue. So um, let me give you just then a little bit of a map, and that map includes uh, the, the qualities. And mm-hmm. the, the first quality, Mitch, that I looked at, was altruism. Um, You know, I've been particularly inspired by people like Nelson Mandela or Malala. Of course. James uh, Goodall, uh, Rigoberto Menchu. You know, women and men who have um, uh, completely selfless, it's not self-sacrificing, but a a deep concern about the well-being of others, whether they're chimpanzees or uh, a landscape or a human being or a race. Dr. King is a powerful example. Uh, Joan Chittiser, Sister Joan Chittiser, um, Mm -hmm. who is uh, a, a... a Christian sister who is deeply involved in um, uh, justice issues, civil rights issues, Father John Deere, mm-hmm. who's been to prison 75 times. So what is it about these people? God, and yes. when um, uh, they dedicate their lives completely to the well-being of others, they are mm-hmm. uh, sources of inspiration for people like me. Um, yes. and uh, And me. What about an ordinary people? You know, and I write about sure. ordinary people in the book, um, like Wesley Autry, who was the uh, man standing on the subway platform who um, saw that another man fell off that platform, a young white guy, and was mm-hmm. having a seizure in the tracks. And his, his yeah. Wesley Autry is standing with his daughters, two daughters, uh, on the platform. There's probably another hundred people. And he's the man who... Um, jumped off the subway track with a train coming in off order to pull Pola Peter uh, uh, from the, the um, yeah, jumped off Tracks. the platform in order to pull yeah. Hola Peter out of the way of the coming subway, but he couldn't move him. And so he laid on top of this young guy uh, while this guy was having seizures, pressed him down, and the subway train passed over their heads, grazing Wesley Autry's hat. Cap, oh, cap. And people were mm. blown away. And mm. he said, well, wouldn't anybody do this? Well, there were 99 <laughs> others who didn't. He did. <laughs> right. You know, really. Now, that's right. an altruist. It's an altruist it like is. Malala, for example, who, um, What's that you know, story? in, in the uh, face of, um, you know, tremendous resistance to the education of girls in this Taliban area, um, mm-hmm. She stood up for the rights of education as a young girl herself and got shot in the head and um, managed to survive and won a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and is the oh, yes, for the 16-year-old Pakistani girl. Yes, exactly. That's right. Correct. Mm-hmm. That's who you're referring so, to, right? <clears throat> get the name, you yeah. Mm-hmm. So That's right. It is extraordinary. There are extraordinary things being done by what we refer to, and I don't really care for the phrase ordinary people because I feel that everybody 
in varying capacities are. And if it doesn't show up right away, it tends to show up at times of particular stress and strife and conflict, such as look at what happened in Texas, for instance, uh, with all of the flooding and everything that happened. It's actually happening all over the country, and look what's going on with the fires. So there are ordinary people, so to speak, uh, who are reaching out and helping other people all the time, whether it's putting their lives at risk or it's providing home care, comfort, and shelter for the other family members who are, uh, you know, still around from all that's going on these days. I know that you're referring to this kind of so-called ordinary. I don't think it's ordinary at all, but please go on. Well, I think this is really, uh, um, you know, and and when we, for example, uh, read about uh, the lives of these people, um, what we see, you know, we have this feeling, for the most part, most people will feel morally elevated. Now, mm-hmm. so this is altruism, not our moral elevation, but um, the fact that there are people in yes. the world, uh, for example, our parents. Our pa- we would not be alive save for the altruism of our parents, no matter how complicated mm-hmm. our parents were. Still, our parents yeah. kept us alive at a very yeah. critical stage uh, in our development. So, you know, this, this um, uh, motivation uh, to be of service to, and uh, to serve is really important, and it's, this, it's selfless. It's without, you know, fundamentally without ego. And yes. um, what is so uh, wonderful is that um, uh, we have a world with many altruists in it, you know, big ones and smaller ones and medium-sized ones, and we're yeah. blessed. Now, yeah. when um, altruism uh, harms us physically or mentally, or when our altruism um, harms the institution that we're serving in, or the person whom we're serving, or may, maybe even harms the institution um, associated with that which we're trying to serve or whom we're trying to serve, or the nation, like Haiti, um, uh, then it's moving into the range of what we call pathological altruism. Mm -hmm. And this is a a term um, used in social psychology um, uh, that um, uh, refers to exactly this kind of harm. Now, you know, if Wesley Autry had uh, died as a result of uh, trying to save the life of this young film student, maybe he would have been deemed a pathological altruist. You know, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't die, and so he became yes. a, a hero. But yeah. in any case, um, uh, in a more, uh, let's say, within the range of normal, a, a less uh, dramatic uh, version Example. of altruism yeah. where we're not jumping into the you know mm-hmm. rail subway tracks with an oncoming train yeah. heading our way yeah. but um just in the work for example of sitting with a dying person um if we don't take care of our biological sci- psychological economic social needs along the way we can really end up harming ourselves and becoming disabled as a result and yes. so this is um uh and many people, you know, have talked to me about 
how important it is that they're, you know, of service to others. But what you see and what I observe is that they're actually um, doing this out of a need, for example, to be appreciated by others or to have have some kind of power or um, out of uh, a sense of not very good self-esteem and so forth, and they end up harming themselves and potentially harming others. So I go very deep, Mitch, into this whole area of the power and the importance of altruism, but also um, the issue uh, that altruism can go south. Yeah. I'd like to weigh in a touch here, if I may, Joan, which is to say, number one, I've been part of a community, and altruism, if you will, community here in New York, where there is this, uh, um, this notion that altruism is actually a biological function, which is very, very interesting. And what I also hear you saying is translating into slightly different languages, and this is one of the points of your book that I uh, very much appreciate is you're talking about the shadow. So on one hand there's the light side if you will of mm-hmm. the of the of the human natural impulse to serve uh those who are dying, those who are in trouble, etc. And then there's what you're describing of course as going too far. And that would probably be for some egoic reason uh that you're referring to like uh someone wanting to be appreciated or social status or what have you. And then it goes over, you know, you talk about the edge states of going over the edge. And um, so there we have, you know, what Carl Jung famously referred to as, as the shadow, that part of us that is less developed, that is less mature and needs some light shed on it for its own maturation, you know. So I, I just kind of wanted to bring those thoughts up in light of what you're saying yeah you've just you've hit it spot on mitch and i think um you know one of the points that i make in the book because we're all just human beings and i think that um it's really important not to be hard on ourselves um Mm -hmm. if uh we find ourselves going over the edge. Um, this is not an, uh, a, a rare uh, case. Um, I have a feeling that um, all of these people whom I so uh, uh, cherish, admire, yes. have, you know, in various ways uh, gone over the edge. But what builds mm-hmm. humility is when you've gone over the edge uh, and you find your way back to the high side of uh, any one of these capacities. And that mm-hmm. kind of humility is very important. Um, Interesting. About depth, perspective. Um, it builds character. Yes. Yes. Could you give an example of um, someone that might come to mind, Joan, who has been, in this case, you know, uh, of those five attributes, altruistic and who... Uh, then goes too far in excess, as we say in Chinese medicine. Everything is a matter of uh, illness, is a matter of either excess or deficiency or a a block of flow. So it, it kind of also relates to that model. So if someone is excessive and then sees it and then comes back with humility but also then rises up 
up, as you're saying. Is there is there a kind of a narrative? I, I have that you know examples in in my, you know for example the um, the story the case of a of a um, a woman who was taking care of her dying mother and um, uh, is it you know. I'm not sure I told the whole story in the book. I don't quite remember, but how the whole story mm-hmm. happens is her mother um, had a lot of needs. Uh, the daughter felt that um, she was really the only person who could take care of her mother well, very close mm-hmm. to her mother, and um, provided you know, selfless care, was kind of on call 24-7, uh, yes. lived in the, in the same house as her mother. And um, at a certain point, um, she became exhausted, uh, burned out. She was experiencing empathic distress. She was, mm-hmm. her mother was in increasing pain. Um, her mother's distress was translating into her distress, and she ended up getting angry and um, yes. being basically resentful of her mother. So her altruism, mm-hmm. you know, had uh, become entangled with empathic distress, it had become entangled with burnout, and also um, it had manifested as uh, disrespect because she was in in a way subtly abusing her mother and she was yes. disrespecting herself. Now what was powerful for me in um, relating with her was um, her insight that um, at a certain point she realized she was going off the rails and she felt uh, first uh, ashamed and guilty, and um, mm-hmm. out of that, you know, share, sharing that experience, um, which is one could totally understand why she felt ashamed and guilty, but sharing that experience um, was uh, very therapeutic for her because she began to turn compassion first toward herself. Um, she yes. realized that beating, beating up on herself was uh, uh, not going to help at all. And um, yes. once she saw, you know, I made, she took responsibility, you know, I I overdid it. I excluded other caregivers from the uh-huh. Um I didn't mm-hmm. have confidence in other people. That taking responsibility was really important, Mitch. Yes, and, yes. Um, uh, that's key, I think, Joan. I think that's key to the recognition that one has gone too far. Exactly. And so you can imagine, she moved back into the zone of healthy altruism. and But she moved back in with humility and also with the kind of perspective of knowing the landscape of toxic altruism and all yes. of it that entails toxic altruism. And, um, you know, it, it created a much more inclusive caregiving team and, you know, uh, reconciled with her mother. Yeah. So that's just a Beautiful. you know example. That's a great story. Gosh. That really exemplifies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope that Thank was you. helpful to some of our listeners. Very helpful. Oh, very helpful. Very helpful. Yeah. No, it hit it hits it on the head because I I know I'm my father just turned ninety one on Saturday as a matter of fact, and mm-hmm. so I have been and uh, at another stage my sister was. Uh, very much the caretaker, and I know what it feels like to be going through that. On one hand, you want to be incredibly wonderful and impeccable for one's parents, 
And uh, then it gets to a point where you look at your own life and you go, oh my God, I have been neglecting this, 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 and that. And this is, this is expensive emotionally, economically, and spiritually. And one has to sort of recoil and find another balance is mm-hmm. what I hear you saying. And I, I've experienced it directly in my own life through that and through actually yeah. many, many contexts. Yeah, professionally and otherwise, yeah. So please, I, yeah, um, please carry on. This is so instructive. Well, you know, uh, a lot to be said uh, about it. Yes. Yes, indeed. um, Now, there are other points among the five that you uh, articulate in the book. Do you want to walk us through the others? Yeah, I I will. I'm very happy to do that. So, um, you know, the second edge state that I describe, Mitch, is empathy. And empathy is that physical, uh, emotional, or uh, psychological or cognitive resonance, rather, Mm -hmm. with an individual where um, one identifies and seems to experience um, what the other is experiencing. And empathy, you know, a world without empathy, uh, uh, Mitch, is a world where we're really dead to each other. Empathy is a very important capacity. And um, yet, um, uh, if, for example, we over-identify with uh, the experience of another, and I I describe this in various ways in the book. You know, in the book I talk Mm -hmm. about somatic or physical empathy, uh, I talk about emotional and cognitive empathy. And if there's over-identification, we can experience empathic distress. First is empathic arousal, empathic over-arousal, empathic distress, empathic distress that leads to a kind of personal distress that can cause us to respond to others in ways that you know, are pathologically altruistic. It's called selfish prosocial behavior. Um, mm-hmm. It's basically uh, interacting, you know, with a person who's suffering, where we've kind of caught the suffering, and where uh-huh. um, uh, we're managing the other person's experience, but really to manage our own experience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, or we can yeah. experience moral outrage, or we can go numb. Uh, or we can even abandon the person or the situation um, whom we're endeavoring to care for. So, um, uh, true. Uh, you know, and, and this is so important, uh, Joan, because the, mm-hmm. if I may just add in here, that there's another aspect of the empathy question that you're outlining here, which is the question of blurring of boundary as, as a holistically oriented psychotherapist for many years. And I I still work with groups as well um, where we do something I think you would find interesting called therapeutic theater. Um, And in that context, I was just doing this at a yoga retreat in the Bahamas at uh, Shivananda down there. They they loved it. And it's uh, this process where we stand in each other's shoes to develop the empathy. Uh, And it's very interesting when you actually physically stand where the other person is or where they they are identified with a certain physical Mm -hmm. locus and then you switch roles back and forth it's it's an old practice that i've kind of renamed um but when one does that one feels what it's like to be inside those other shoes and then there's the extra next step 
of coming back to yourself with that un- new understanding, if you will, that empathic understanding, and still doing what you need to do, resetting one's own boundaries yet again after, if you will, melding, mind melding, you know, heart melding mm-hmm. with another person. Wow. This sounds fantastic. I haven't seen that kind of work, but I can see, you know, or I can yeah. imagine how powerful it is. Yeah. It wonderful. really is. really yeah. wonderful. It's fantastic so, you know, for conflict the, resolution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Please, go on. So one of the things that, um, you know, I've done is I've tried to, you know, as a long-term meditative meditation practitioner is to, yeah. Um, understand how uh, empathy operates within our experience. And I mm-hmm. think it operates less like an out-of-body experience where we, quote, stand in another person's <laughs> shoes. And uh-huh. it's more about expanding our subjectivity to include yes. the experience of another. Does that make sense to yes. you? Oh, it does. It's a beautiful rendering of the idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't see them as mutually exclusive, but I do appreciate that that languaging of it. I think that's very – I like it. <laughs> I'll leave it at that, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, th- I, think it's, I, I think it's kind of important in a funny way. Um, yes. To, yeah. to, uh, you know, because you're, I... you're identifying the other person's experience in, in one's own, that's if right. I hear you correctly. And, yeah. and but you're also expanding your sense of subjectivity, and you know part Truly. of um, what what we're trying to do in our practice is to actualize this uh, capacity that we have um, to yes. uh, uh, you know in a in a very powerful way to realize that we're not separate from any being or thing. Yes. So anyway, that's you know one of the yes. little insights that I try to share in the book, uh, book because I I think this is an important uh, insight for us to have. Um, I do too. How how uh, yeah. our empathy works, but um, you know, yes. learning how to both uh, be in resonance with an individual and having the so-called metacognitive perspective, where we're mm-hmm. able to self from other is really important. Yes. So Doesn't it a, seem paradoxical? Another, well, you know, I think we it is in a certain way it is um, paradoxical. <laughs> in uh, a fun but in way. another way, you know, yeah. we're able to see through uh, various lenses. Yes. You know, one is we we, we have the view that um, of uh, interbeing, of interconnectedness. And then from another perspective, um, we understand like every snowflake is made of water, but it's yes. also unique. Every wave Correct. is distinct. It's also made of water. Every wave <laughs> is made of water. Very so true. holding Very these true. two things at the same time. Does that make sense? I sometimes, oh, perfect, perfect sense, absolutely. I, I sometimes define God when I'm in a playful mood, Joan, as imagination. So that actually oh, relates 
Yeah, interesting. It relates back to what you were saying about expanding one's subjective experience. If one expands one's subjective experience to include all sentient life and all creation, wow, tell me, what then is the difference between you and, you know, to use the Judeo-Christian notion of creator? (laughs) Is there a difference? Well, that's that is too deep a question for me to answer, <laughs> but I think it's a powerful question. Yeah, it's great. It's fun. It's, really great. it's fun. <laughs> Please so, go on. you know, uh, anyway, this is so. There's a, a deep dive, uh, Mitch, into empathy, and it includes, yeah. uh, I think, uh, um, stories and. Uh, neuroscience and social psychology and insights yes. that I think are really important for us today mm-hmm. and, you know, in our world today. I so agree. You know, I then, Mitch, uh, take a deep dive into integrity, um, which uh, how important in a world where we see, you know, uh, oh. Oh, is right. Oh. Gosh, do I have to talk about the trial that's going Such on today? Pain. You know, right? Oh, right. It is. Don't it get is us really started, Joan. Yeah, right. Morally horrifying. Oh, and, um, God, yes. Yeah. So, uh, um, I I look at the profound value of integrity, um, mm-hmm. of living. Uh, conscientiously within our values and moral principles. And I cite, for example, the example of Fannie Lou Hamer, who ran for president of the United States um, and who uh, was born into a sharecropper family, was a sharecropper herself, Hmm. uh, ended up in her 40s becoming a member of SNCC, was one of the most powerful voices in the civil rights movement in the 1960s who witnessed horrendous suffering toward uh, her people in the South and um, where she experienced both moral distress and moral injury, witnessing uh, murder and beating in herself. She was almost uh, beaten to death by the police upon one of her arrests. And um, she became one of the powerful voices in the civil rights movement, igniting people like me and others into action uh, mm-hmm. in the defense of civil rights. So, you know, I talk about uh, the, and of course Howard Zinn is another powerful example who's mm-hmm. also a friend of hers. Um, and yes. he's quoted in the book as well. So, I, you know, I use the example of, of these kind of people and others like them that are not known, but, you mm-hmm. know, who have, have really against uh, the, the grain of... Uh, uh, society and what's happening like in our world today and have, have yes. you know, spoken truth to power. But the mm-hmm. toxic side then is of moral suffering <clears throat> and it's when uh, integrity breaks down. And yes. I look at moral suffering from the, the perspective of uh, four different lenses and those lenses include moral distress, which is, you know, we can see a way through, but we can't do anything about it. Now, for many people in yes. this country, for example, uh, our current political situation uh, are feeling moral distress because um, uh, it's felt that you know the impeachment of our 
uh, current head of state would um, be a really good thing. And yet uh, it's, it's hard to come by. It's difficult to come yes. by. Or mm-hmm. there are policies in um, hospitals, for example, that um, are, are discriminatory uh, racially or mm-hmm. in terms of sexual preference or in terms of gender and so forth or age. Mm-hmm. And so, yes. you know, we see, how, oh, yes. we have to change those policies, but, you know, we're dealing with the old garden. It's very difficult to change those policies. Yes. So we experience moral distress. And then um, there's moral injury, and that is when we're part of a system or situation um, or, you know, in our own lives um, where there has been egregious trespass, egregious harm. And um, we have been part of it, either witnessing it or participating in it. And this is well documented in the military literature, but I suggest that um, it happens in uh, the world of teachers, in the world of education, in the world of law, mm-hmm. where you know lawyers defending a criminal that she knows has uh, uh, been, you know, engaged in horrible harm to others, and yet in a certain way she has to represent, you know, try to keep this person from going to prison, and. Yeah. Um, uh, and experiences deep shame as a result of, uh, um, um, you know, engaging in that kind of activity. Yeah. Or clinicians who um, uh, uh, who experience moral injury because they are, uh, you know, they've ex- extended the life of a patient uh, with artificial means, causing great uh, physical uh, suffering to the patient. And they experience mm-hmm. it. The clinicians feel moral injury. Mm, so, interesting. Um, yeah. uh, I, you know, and I think that that this is uh, much more common than is. Uh, it's much more common than just spoken documented of. in the, in the yeah. military than than is spoken of. Mm-hmm. So the third um, uh, lens of moral suffering that um, I I talk about uh, in the book is moral outrage and. Um, that is not where we interject the shame and blame, but we express uh, the shame and blame. We express it outwardly. Yes. You know, people who have uh, violated moral principles. And um, so this is, you know, I, I know the feeling myself. I was, you know, a civil rights yes. worker. I've uh, protested many wars. I've experienced a lot of moral outrage in relation to our current political situation. Mm-hmm. My experience moral outrage in relation to the treatment of patients. So yes. know, episodic moral outrage can be useful just in terms of speaking truth to power, but chronic mm-hmm. can be a kind of state of mind that um, is degrading of our uh, internal intrapsychic uh, condition and also our interpersonal relations. Yes. And we don't get done what we want to get done. <laughs> So, in other words, on one hand, we stand up for and speak about uh, our perspective on what we consider morally outrageous, and on the other, we need to also, in a sense, I hear you suggest, let go of that, not as an identity that one holds on to forever, a lens that one has fastened to one's eyes, but 
comes back to one's own original self, if you will, and kind of gets on with their own business at hand and rises yes. to the occasion as needed. Is that an interpretation you know, you're... That is one interpretation, and also there's another valence that's important. Mm-hmm. And that is, for example, um, for those uh, of us who disagree with the approach that Donald Trump takes to things, yes. um, and mm-hmm. we feel uh, that it's a moral violation, also, yes. I wouldn't want to be in Donald Trump's mind. Uh, really, mm-hmm. that's True. suffering. That is suffering. Yes. And so uh, compassion doesn't make a discrimination and in a certain way, uh, there's good suffering and bad suffering. It's to understand from the point of view of compassion that holding that person accountable is compassionate by the same token to understand that the actions um, that uh, this person is engaged in uh, uh, it are, are also creating harm for that person just by being in that state of mind. Being cruel yes. is not it's a suffering state of mind. So, you know, yes. it's not to tolerate it, so to speak, but it's to understand that, too, is suffering. Indeed. Does that make sense to you, Mitch? Oh, yes, it very much does. In order to perpetuate cruelty or harm in the world, you ask yourself, who in the world would do that except for someone who is inwardly suffering tremendously? You could say that gets projected outward or they're taking it out on, you know, the world. But you're right. To be inside that mind, to be perpetuating what he, in this case, is doing, or anyone who's perpetuating harm, it's a hellish place to be. Exactly. So um, the last lens that I go into in relation to moral suffering, Mitch, is uh, moral apathy. And this particular mm. lens uh, became visible for me in watching the uh, James Baldwin film, I'm Not Your Negro, when uh, oh. Baldwin actually used the term uh, moral apathy. And I was like, oh, my gosh, oh. this is yes. also an expression of moral suffering. Yes. And so, you know, it was yeah. very powerful moment for me. I, in the book, uh, Mitch, I explored in terms of privilege, um, you know, living inside of a bubble where you're just yeah. ignorant of the, the suffering of others. You don't even know you're a racist. Of course, it's hard to mm-hmm. avoid knowing you're a racist yeah. in today's world. But, um, yes. you know, I can say that as, as from my perspective, but I think that there are people, uh, you know, in other parts of our country and the world that um, mm-hmm. who are racist don't have any idea that they're racist. Mm-hmm. And um, moral ap- apathy is also, you know, uh, uh, engendered um, and amplified through behaviors that are fundamentally addictive. So, yes. you know, drug, sex, rock and roll. Yes, right. You know. Right. So the ways that we numb and dumb ourselves down in order not yes. to stay uh, in touch with the first noble truth of the Buddha, the truth of suffering. Mm-hmm. And also, um, we might not do, be doing it consciously at all, but uh, it's happening. Yes. And yes. Um, as a result, uh, 
um, you know, whole parts of our lives in a way are sort of amputated from us. So th- these are the four lenses. And I, I realize we're getting a little bit close on time, so I'm going to move on to the last two pieces, which sure. are uh, is the fourth edge state I talk about is respect. And um, in respect, I look at um, uh, it's important to have respect for others, re- respect for principles and values, and respect for ourselves. And then I do a deep dive into uh, forms of disrespect um, that uh, we see rampant in our culture today. One is called horizontal hostility. And this is uh, behaviors of disparagement, of disrespect happening between peers. And um, this is, of course, our political freedom is a really good example of this. Horrifying for me to think of children looking at this and thinking, this is how human beings treat each other? Awful. Um, And then there's vertical violence. And that's uh, from the top down, you know, when our, you know, presumptive uh, head of state leaders um, speaks, you know, speaks disparagingly of people from certain nations or certain races and so forth. Gender, uh, what have you. You know, yeah. it's very, uh, you know, that is called um, vertical violence. And disrespect mm-hmm. can be bottom-up. Vertical violence can operate bottom-up where, you know, we basically mm-hmm. disparage um, uh, people who have greater rank or power uh, or authority yes. than we do. So, and then the final one uh, that I look at um, is of engagement. You know, how... Yeah. Uh, important it is for us to be wholeheartedly engaged in our work, our lives with our families, but how frequent burnout happens, you know, as a result of pathological altruism or empathic distress Mm -hmm. or how we disrespect ourselves Mm -hmm. and so forth. So I, I look, you know, at burnout even to the point in Asia where people die of overwork. Mm-hmm. Or where you know, our our Japan, value actually. identity is around us being you know busy all the time. Yeah. And then in the final part of the book, like productive Mitch, bees, um, productive bees. Right. Yeah. yeah. And burnout is something um, that is so well. We have a whole industry dealing with burnout. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes. Counselors yes. and coaches. That's right. Some of the work that I do and you do, yes. Uh And, you know, it causes harm not only to uh, ourselves, but also just like burnout in medicine, patients suffer as a result of this. Families suffer as a result of this. Nurses who are working double shifts or doctors, for that matter, you know. Yeah. Over the top. They cannot be conscious and functional doing what is being demanded of them. Yeah. Please go on. And then the final section of the book, um, Mitch, is uh, in relation to compassion. And I look at compassion from, uh, you know, using um, uh, the work of Tanya Singer and Richie Davidson, Atwan Lutz, and... Um, mm-hmm. uh, mm, you know, Al Kazniak, um, Charles, Chuck Rezon, um, you know, people have been doing this work on compassion for years. And that it's a compassion yeah. is a win-win situation. And it involves many features, including insight. 
um, and including selfless intention. And it is the kind of lever that transforms the uh, fraught aspect of these edge states mm. into health aspects. Mm-hmm. So I take a deep dive into this. And um, uh, I think that compassion is, you know, uh, mindfulness uh, has been a wave of great importance, uh, sweeping the globe, tremendous uh, value. And I mm-hmm. think that the current wave of yeah, tremendous value in His Holiness, you know, the Dalai Lama makes it clear, is sure. compassion. Yes, yes. So that is a little bit Fantastic. about the book. What a wonderful piece of work. <laughs> Thank you, Joan. Truly, it is thoughtful, well, it is deep, and it's so honest. It's got that edge of honesty, no pun intended, that uh, we really want to have. There are so many books on so-called spirituality that are sort of a pious gloss, if you will. There's a certain kind of almost glibness about the wonderfulness of all when one comes to one's own self and center. But, you know, we're actually living on the edge, uh, as you well describe in the book, uh, between an indulgence, if you will, or an excess, uh, and being on the straight and narrow of being in the state and being able to give. But it's really pretty easy to fall off. And, of course, forgiveness is a beautiful aspect of it all, where we, you know, are kind enough to ourselves to just get back on the horse and start riding. Your comments? Um, I love how you've said it. And um, you're a better rider for getting back on the horse. Yes, yes, yes. Very true. Thank Very you true. so well, much. This has just been a joy talking with you oh, and, and yes. your your you. great audience. And I look forward to um, another conversation in the future. And I hope people buy this book. I think this book is very Me important too. for our world today. Standing Beautiful at the journal. Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. And your website is? www.upaya.org. Beautiful. Joan Halifax, thank you so much for sharing with our audience today. Your work is magnificent. I so appreciate it and you. And indeed, we will have you back on sometime relatively soon. We waited too long in the first place, and now we will stop waiting so long. So thanks again. Thank you so much. Okay. Absolutely. God bless. Bye-bye. Joan Halifax, the author of several books, but of course the one we were speaking of is her most recent, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. And as I just said, I, I very much appreciate there is a an authenticity in the book where it is not just the glory of inner work and how blissful one can become, and that is very true. Her work is so related to life, to daily life, and the way emotions rise and fall and dominate us for a bit and then back off, and uh, the whole panorama, if you will, she goes into, and I, she put it so beautifully 
in today's show and dialogue about how just if you go too far in the world, say, of being altruistic, you could be risking your own life, as in the example she used of Wesley, and or in helping others. And yes, that is this natural impulse, and I like to actually describe it as biological, which is born from, we didn't get into this exactly, but I believe that we would be uh, in alignment with the notion that fundamentally we are one. And if we are one, then just as one cell in a body would seek to protect another, or one tree in a forest we now know seeks to protect and nourish another standing by it, so we two humans in, you could say, the larger body of the divine, or whatever word you would want to use, are doing what we can to protect and preserve each other, because fundamentally there is a knowing on a very deep level that we are one. So uh, Joan Halifax helps us really understand that and get fluent, if you will, in the space of relating to ourselves, relating to others with dignity, with respect, with integrity, and empathy as well. And I love what you were saying about uh, expanding one's subjective experience and, you know, basically expanding it to include everything. How interesting. And that's when I said, you know, perhaps the best definition of God at the end of it all is imagination, that we have this inborn gift through imagination to expand our subjective experience ad infinitum. And uh, it's fun to think about and play with, you know. But I want to just thank all of you for listening in today. I always appreciate it. Uh, just to remind you, we are a nonprofit organization, and to help us stay sustained, we appreciate your donations. You could say your investment in a better world. It's always so appreciated. And also, all of our services, our healing services, coaching, counseling, bio, biofeedback, uh, energy balancing through our harmonic energetic balancing program, all of that is available and goes to helping to support a better world. Visit us on our websites, www.abetterworld.tv. We just got the newsletter sign-up back up, so please go, and if you're not yet receiving, please sign up for our free newsletter that only comes out once a week. You will not be deluged. And visit www.mitchellrabin.com. That's, of course, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com for uh, more information on the services that I personally offer professionally. So I thank you again, and we love that we have an expanding audience in India and Australia and Mexico and, well, the United States, of course, but also around the world. It's very heartening for me to know that we are reaching our brothers and sisters everywhere. So on that note, this is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Make sure to forward this 
around to uh, others you know and care for and love. And remember, this book by Joan Halifax, Standing at the Edge, is very enriching. It's deeply, ultimately empowering and uh, very humanizing. And I definitely encourage you to pick it up. We also have it on our website and in our newsletter for easy ordering through Amazon, and that helps us out too. On that note, thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you.